I'm going to read from Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say to you, Shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This comes from Romans 5, 17 through 19. For if by the trespass of one, the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more were those who received God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many who were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you would pray with me. Lord, we are here to recognize that you are the author of light, life, that when you speak, your word goes forth and accomplishes its purpose. None of us here have that power, but you do. Lord, I cannot speak anything into existence. I, I cannot change hearts. My words are death. And we need life. So God, I pray that my words now would fall to the ground and would blow away. But Lord, let your words remain. And may they change us. May they breathe life into us. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Um, yesterday I was at the Davila News house for Christian Davila News birthday um, I was there with my whole family, and my two-year-old Georgia um, just heard her say, I not date till 30. Um, I not date till 30. It, seriously, she said that. I'm not sure why exactly she said that. I did see Christian was nearby, and I'm not sure if Christian was asking her out or, or what was going on, but she said that, to which my response was, maybe. If Daddy approves, we'll see. At 30, um, as parents, we try to keep evil away from our kids. Every parent feels like their child is God's precious little angel. You know, that, that they are perfect and the whole world out there is full of all these evil people trying to corrupt your precious little angel. 
Uh, When it comes to our own children, most parents agree with the philosopher John Locke, who suggested that people are born with no tendencies at all, Um, that they're born innocent, that their minds are blank slates just waiting to have information written on them. And this is why new parents are always shocked, absolutely shocked when they have their first play date with with other kids and they they see their child interacting with another child for the first time and, and, and their child might pick up a wooden block and just absolutely clock the other kid across the head to which the other kid will retaliate and and as parents, you're just, you can't believe what's going on, and you separate the kids, and as you look in their eyes, you realize the only thing that keeps them from killing one another is strength. It is not will, uh, because they have the will, they have the anger, and you're shocked. And, and so you, you start trying to explain this, and you're like, you know what? The trouble is my child has bad influences in their life. And so you start trying to make a list of other kids that they can't be around because other children are bad influences on your children. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but any parent who has a really rebellious child, they always say, he's just with the wrong crowd. He's just with the wrong crowd. It never crosses their mind that he might be the wrong crowd. That, that he might actually be the bad influence. It, it's always somebody else. Their child is innocent. It's other people forcing their child to do those things. And so as a parent, you, you think for a while, you're like, you know what, I'm just going to lock my kid up in the room, maybe lock them in the closet until they're 20. That way they'll be normal. Um, that way they won't be influenced by sin. There's a lot of problems with that. Don't, don't leave doing that. The problem with all of that is that your child doesn't have to learn from others to be selfish. They don't have to learn the word mine. No. They, they come instinctively to a child. They're they in the children. Um, it does not matter if you were raised in a palace, isolated from people, only had the best tutors. You still are selfish. It doesn't matter if you were raised um, on the mission field, you know, and your parents were the godliest people in the world and you're raised in this simple hut. You, You are still going to be selfish. Everyone has that in them. A.W. Pink rightly says that there is no empire, no nation, no family tree that is free from this awful disease. And sin is universal because we all share a common ancestor. In Adam, we just read about, in Adam, all of us die. So the biblical record of what we call the fall of man is found here in Genesis chapter 3. And it explains, it alone explains why we are the way we are. It's not because of other people. It's not because of other influences. It's because we were born this way. We are fallen individuals. There is original sin in our lives. Some of you might remember um, that I preached on the fall and original sin about a year and a half ago. I'm sure you all remember every word of that. Um, And so I decided whether I was going to preach on this again or not. And I decided to go ahead and do it. And, uh, and this time to take two weeks 
and, and to really unpack it. So for the next two weeks, we're going to look at Genesis 3 and the fall, and then next week, the implications of this fall. And the reason I want to take a couple of weeks is because it is crucial to understand the nature of the fall, to understand your sin nature, because if you don't understand your problem, you're going to go to different things to find a solution. If you don't under, understand original sin, you are going to make the mistake when you look at the world and think what's wrong with this world is we need better government, or we need more money, or we need better educators, or we need a better justice system. And, and you're going to be thinking of all these things of what's wrong with the world, and you're going to look for something else to fix it other than what's really needed, which is Jesus Christ. The reality is, all of these systems, educational systems, government systems, they're all broken, and they're not the cause of evil, but they're the result of evil. Evil that is within us. Now, I'm sure when the Israelites heard this for the first time, it's probably shocked them a little bit. Remember, Genesis is written to those Israelites who are wandering around in the desert. You know, they've just escaped from Egypt. Moses is writing Genesis for them, and they have only known a world of evil, suffering. Certainly, they're looking around going, what, in, what is wrong with this world? And they're, they're, they're wanting to point fingers and God tells them through Moses, no, no, this is what's wrong with the world. And so they have to turn and point the fingers at themselves. We're fallen. We're sinful. I mean, the problem is man has sinned against his Creator. And, and when Adam and Eve sinned and when they fell, we fell with them. Adam and Eve, they could not blame their bad parents. They could not blame bad influences. They couldn't blame, hey, we, it was a harsh environment. Hey, we, we came from a broken home. Adam and Eve couldn't blame any of that. They were in paradise. And yet they still fell. And they passed that down to us like one would pass a bad gene that we've all inherited. Before we, we get into the details of the fall, we need to look at what builds up to it. So go back to chapter 2 and look at verse 15. The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God places Adam in the midst of this beautiful garden. And once Eve is given to him, he has everything he needs. Everything's provided for him. He has meaningful work. He has adventures and an entire world to explore. He's got fellowship with God, perfect fellowship with his spouse. 
He's got this bounty of pleasures and, and fruits before him. He has everything. They have everything. And God gives them one restriction. They are not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when they eat of that tree, they shall surely die. Which, which begs the question, why, why in the world did God plant a tree like this in the middle of the garden? I mean, if the tree is dangerous, if the tree is poisonous or something like that, why, why did He plant it there? It, it's like, you know, we have a garden in our backyard. It's like me planting poison ivy in the backyard along with our tomatoes and stuff, but, but the poison ivy would really look like candy. It would look really enticing. And for me to tell my children, don't get near that. Don't touch that. I mean, you have here God putting this tree in the middle of the garden and there's no ropes around it. There's no fence around it. The only thing is His Word. Don't eat it. Which makes you think at first that, okay, God's testing them. That's what this is. This is, a, this is a test. You need to throw that out. Do, do not think of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as a test. No, God is actually giving Adam and Eve a way to worship Him. That's what He's doing. He's providing a way to worship Him. This was how they could show that they actually trusted God. They actually trusted Him. They actually delighted Him, not just in the things He gave them. I mean, everything else they would do naturally at this point. Of course they're going to work a garden. Of course they're going to eat its fruits. Of course they're going to procreate. Of course they're going to do all these things. But here's the one thing that's not natural. Here's the one way, the only reason they would not do this is because God told them. And so they could show God, you above all else are, are our delight. We trust you above all else. This is their opportunity to worship. You could actually uh, consider the first, these two trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, as the first sacraments in the Bible in the sense that they are these physical realities here in which what you do with these physical realities brings spiritual implications. You can eat of the tree of life and spiritually you are, you are alive. Physically and spiritually alive. But if you were to partake the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you would die. And so here in the garden, God gives man the opportunity to simply worship Him apart from His gifts. So this is the one time He's going to withhold this wonderful gift. He's going to withhold it and say, trust me. And He appeals only to His character saying, do you trust I'm good? Do you trust that I'm loving? Do you trust I, I have your best interests? Trust me and obey. Believe me when I say that obedience to me is better than the most satisfying fruit. Back to the Israelites. Um, this story, in hearing this story, 
would have given them a lot of understanding into either the tabernacle they were making or had just made at this point. If you remember, when we went through Exodus, um, you, you've got about ten chapters or so of endless details about building this tabernacle. I mean, it goes into all the minutia, how the curtains need to be woven, all of this endless details about this, because every detail is important Because if you look at the design of this tabernacle, it's actually made to resemble the Garden of Eden. And that's what they're building out there, in a sense, is this new garden. And you could go through a lot of the intricacies of design and see that, but the the main elements are, once again, you have the presence of God coming and being in their midst. Second, you have this lampstand, which is uh, shaped like a decorative tree in which when you light the lampstand, it, it shows the light on the, um, the presence, the bread of presence, which symbolizes God's provision, God taking care of them, God's bounty to them. And so that's the tree of life. You have this tree and God's provision. And then you have the law of God in the ark, which is similar to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if they keep the law, they're blessed. If they don't keep the law, they're cursed. And so they have with them this whole time this kind of miniature garden. And they're beginning to see this as they hear this story that that now the Israelites can worship God once again by keeping this law. That's what we have to do. We have to trust Him. We have to realize even though we don't understand all of this law, God is good. Can we trust Him? Let's delight in His goodness. Well, everything's great until a serpent comes on the scene at the beginning of Genesis 3. Um, We don't know really anything about this serpent. We don't know where he has come from. The fact that he's talking is just a little freaky. Um, It doesn't explain how there's a serpent, how he's talking, um, why he's there at this moment. We really don't know anything about the serpent and the author is not interested in telling us that. What's important is what the serpent does, what he says to the woman. And what she says in verse 1, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Now this statement's obviously false. But... The serpent's shrewd. And what he's doing here is he's just trying to begin a conversation with temptation. That's all he's trying to do is just creep open the door, get a conversation going. A conversation about the restrictiveness of God. That's where he wants to steer this. And sure enough, it, it works. She, she had no business talking. This was just somebody that should have been subordinate to her. Verse 2, it says, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. I want you to notice four things about her response. And they are little things, but at the same time they're really big things. They're very subtle 
but they're big. First, notice that she took out the word every. God had said that they could eat of every fruit. But she says in verse 2 that they may eat of the fruit. It's just a little simple thing, but it shows that her mind is already beginning to put restrictions on God. Or saying that God is being restrictive. Second, she uses the serpent's name for God instead of calling God the Lord God. Um, Verse 3 says, but God says. In verse 3, that's what she says, but God says. But up to this point in the story, it's always the Lord God says. Now, in your Bibles, when you have Lord and it's all capitals, um, that's the divine name. That's Yahweh. And that's how your Bible translates it and puts it there. It's Yahweh. This is the personal covenantal name of God there. Um, And by dropping that personal covenantal name of God, notice she's already beginning to distance herself from Him. Third, she adds a restriction. At the end of verse 3, she says that they are not allowed to even touch it. Well, God never said that. But once again, she's seeing God as more and more restrictive. And then finally, she softens the penalty for disobedience. She says at the end of verse 3, lest you die. Lest you die. God had said, you shall surely die. So she softens it. So so these are just little subtle things there you, you can see, but it shows already that she's beginning to see God as more distant. She is beginning to see God as more restrictive. And she's beginning to see that God's punishments are less than severe. And these are the thoughts, I don't know about you, but these are the thoughts that I still have today. I think we all still struggle with this. We often think of God as being way up there and we're down here and there's, there's not that close relational God. And then we reduce our relationship to God as being nothing more than restrictions, nothing more than rules. God telling us all the things He wants us to do. And then, of course, we know from the times that we've broken those rules, like, nothing really happened. And so we think that God's punishment is really not that severe. Well, after hearing Eve's response, the serpent seizes opening. And by the way, we have no clue really how long this temptation went. This could, this could be just, you know, cliff notes or, or in a sense just the summary of the conversation. Because otherwise the, the temptation to fall happens in a span of about 20 seconds. It, this could have gone on for days. This could have gone on for weeks. We don't know how long this temptation went on. But once Satan sees his opportunity... He goes for it. Look at verse 4. It says, The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So Satan, or the serpent here, just straight out attacks 
God's goodness. Notice what he does not attack. He does not attack God's power. He doesn't attack God's holiness. He does not attack God's beauty or His rights that He has over His creation. Um, He doesn't, you know, try to to say God doesn't exist. It would have been a foolish argument to try to say, well, God doesn't even exist. Yes, He exists. And so, He goes after God's goodness. He's not a God that you can really trust. God, the serpent still does this. You know, how often have you heard the question, a good God would not allow this to happen? It's one of the first attacks that Christians get. It's the same argument right here. God's not good. And so he calls God a liar who cannot be trusted. Alan Ross in his commentary on Genesis, he says that Satan continually brings before us the idea that God is holding us back. Continually brings before us the idea that God is holding us back. And that's the lie that we believe. And that's the lie that leads to almost every sin. All I have to do is just start thinking through your sins and you know, I, I can almost hear the serpent say, you know, it, as we give money, it's like, you're going to give money away to people who don't deserve it? I mean, what, why would you do something like that? You worked hard for that money. You deserve it. God's asking you to do that. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. Or, or we feel that maybe when it, we're looking for jobs and we want to just exaggerate a little bit on our resume. Like, well, you know, everybody does that. There's not going to be really any punishment for this. It's not really even a sin. God wants certainly what's best for me. This rule or this restriction is just holding me back from this job. Or did God really say that sex is to be confined within marriage? Really? And that's for my good? Come on, that's, that's like archaic religious stuff. And so we still believe God holds us back. God's a killjoy. I guess I should say we we believe those lies at the moment of temptation. But how many of you, the moment you've given in to temptation, had your eyes opened? How many times has that happened? You've given in to this sin You've tasted of its fruit and your eyes were opened and all you felt was shame. We go through the same experience. Look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband. Um, The temptation comes to a head here. Eve looks at the fruit. She begins to fixate on this fruit. The word desired there means to overly desire. It means that you're really fixating on something. Um, She's coveting the fruit. 
Does that happen to you all that you, or is it just me, that you fixate on things at times? Just this, you always are convinced there's this one thing that's going to make you happy, just, just this one. It could be something like huge. I've, you know, it'll be a spouse. I've got to have a spouse to be happy, or I've got to have a child and then I'll be happy. Um, but it'll also be small things. Um, at one point I was convinced I needed the perfect coffee mug. I went over a year looking for the perfect coffee mug because everything else was like, no, 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 God, you're not being good to me. You know, I need the, the perfect coffee mug. But my personality is to fixate on something. You know, you could, something you fixate on could be, I've, I've got to lose 10 pounds. If I don't lose 10 pounds, then I'm nothing. You begin to forget all about God's abundant goodness to you. His overflowing blessings to you. And you begin to fixate on that one thing. Often a stupid thing. And you can't get past it. This is how temptation comes to us. Eve took, and she ate, and she gave. Look how fast it all happens. We've got this great build-up, this great drama. Then it's, she took, she ate, she gave. It's like boom, boom, boom. Just like that, paradise lost. Just like that, sin comes into the world. The world becomes cursed. All these things we're going to look at next week. Man's relationship with God destroyed. All because that one little act of disobedience. The question I have as I was going through this is, where the heck is Adam in all of this? I mean, he's apparently standing right next to her because she takes the fruit, eats it, and she gives it to him. So Adam is just standing there. He's just sitting there in silence watching all this happen. And, and, I mean, I, the, the middle picture I have is like Adam in, in the lounge, you know, with a bud and just kind of just, you know, just a useless lump. You know, why, why the wife comes and says, man, I'm really struggling with things at work. And he's here, wah, wah, wah. You know, he just, he's not engaged. He doesn't care. He's letting it unfold. There's no correcting his wife. When she misquotes God. Actually, we're not even sure if she's really misquoting. Maybe she's quoting exactly what Adam had originally told her. She did not get the command from God. She got it from Adam. So maybe Adam wasn't careful in the way he communicated it to her. But either way, he should have stepped up to the plate now. And besides that, where is God? I mean, God's got a lot at stake here. Created this whole world. It's about to fall. Created people. Their, their lives are about to be ruined. And certainly you've got to think He cares about what's going on. So you would think He would come in. I mean, come, there's a serpent. Step. End of it. You know, it's over. But God, where is He? He's not there. And actually, God is there. He is there. If you remember, Adam and Eve were created in His image. They were created to reflect Him, to represent Him to the world, to be His ambassador. 
to rule over the world as he would, to lead all of creation into worship. That was their role. And so he should have been reflected in Adam. Yet Eve received no encouraging word from Adam. There's no, hey, don't listen to the serpent. Hey, Eve, no, 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 let's, let's trust God in this. Remember all of God's other commands? He says, light, boom, there's light. He says, land, boom, there's land. He says, animals, boom, there's, la- there's animals. Let's not be the first of his creation to disobey him. Everything he has created has been good and he is blessed. Let's not ruin it. You don't hear that from Adam. He absolutely fails as his duty and his duty as God's image bearer. He also failed in his role of just being a good husband. And so Eve falls. She fails in her role as a helpmate in giving the fruit to her husband. And he takes and eats. Derek Kidner in his commentary on Genesis says this about this verse. She took and ate. So simple the act so hard it's undoing. God will taste poverty and death before take and eat become verbs of salvation. We have to ask, what's wrong really with eating the fruit of this tree? I mean, what happens here? Is this this when they discover good and evil? Um... Uh, that's, that's not the case, because if so, then God's commandment for them to not do it would not make any sense. They, they know good and evil. They, they're in a state of what I would call moral innocence, but not moral ignorance at this point. Um, there's a temptation to give a, a real mystical answer for what the fruit represents, what the tree represents. Um, but, but I think the answer is actually pretty simple and straightforward. When Adam and Eve took the fruit and they ate it, they're saying, God, you do not tell me what is right or wrong. I tell myself what is right or wrong. I am my own moral authority. Now we do what we want, when we want. And in a sense, they've become like God. And when they took of that fruit, death entered their bodies. Had to because God's commandments are life. God's presence is life. And they have broken communion at that point. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 5, which we heard at the beginning of this message, that Adam was a type of a later man to come who is Jesus. He says this, if because of one man's trespass in Adam, death reigned and through reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness 
leads to justification and life for all men. And so through the trespass of Adam, all die. But through the one act of righteousness in Jesus, there's now life for all men. But what is this act of righteousness? To answer that, you've got to go thousands of years ahead from Adam. You've got to go to another garden and to another temptation. You know, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, He went into a garden. He went into the Garden of Gethsemane. And He was tempted beyond what we can even comprehend. And the temptation also was concerning a tree. The cross was before Him. The cross was before Him. And and God has told him, you've got to go to this tree. But unlike Adam, if you're faithful about the tree, you're not going to be blessed. You're going to be cursed. And the wrath of God is going to fall on you. You're going to be punished. And just like Eve, he did not get any encouragement from anybody. I mean, he looks around and his best friends are sleeping. He's hearing nothing. It's the most anxious point in his life. He's sweating drops of blood. He's saying, I really don't want to get go through with this. I really don't. And yet He does. The only reason He obeys is because His Father asked Him. There's, There's no other reasons around Him. And it meant His death. And it meant receiving the curse. And it meant our salvation. Through this one act of righteousness, The curse of God is lifted for us. We're going to sing about that as we close in just a second. That the mighty cross has become a tree of life to us through Jesus Christ. Pray with me. God, we are prone to believe lies. Lies just fill our heads. We are bombarded with lies. Temptation comes day after day. And we're no longer even in a garden. We're no longer in paradise. We don't have to be tempted with, you could become like God. We just have to be tempted with, you could become rich like your neighbor. And it's enough for us. We fall so easily. God have mercy. Jesus, we praise You that under extraordinarily difficult circumstances, beyond what we could comprehend, in the garden You were faithful where we were not. Thank You for taking the curse, for appeasing the wrath of God. Thank You simply is not enough but it's all we can say. And we pray this in Your name, Jesus. Amen.